Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, April 22nd, 2010, and our special guests today are Catherine Mackey and Michael Horn from the Innocent Institute on their new report, Wichita Public Schools. And Catherine and Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you uh, so much for having us, Steve. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Really appreciate your coming on and talking about these reports. I personally find them fascinating and can't uh, wait to hear more today. The interview series is sponsored by Illuminate, my employer, and the job that I have there is to run the Learn Central Social Network for Educators. We hope you'll come and use it. It is free and it has Illuminate baked in. Coming up tonight on Future of Education, Tim Magner to talk about School 2.0. Next week, a special series on Students 2.0 that starts with Dr. Robert Epstein on his massive book called Teen 2.0. Then Jackie Gerstein on user-generated education, Anya Kamenetz on DIYU. Uh, in the middle there, Randy Orwin on open source software, and then lots more fun coming up. Um, hope you'll join us for one of those events. If you've missed the session, they're all recorded and up on conversations.net or futureofeducation.com, including last night's uh, really fascinating look at Larry Ferlazzo's work in uh, working with English language learners uh, in Sacramento schools. Uh, Scott Rosenberg on his uh, somewhat brilliant book on the history of blogging called Say Everything, Tony Wagner on the Global Achievement Gap, Carl Blythe on the tech Texas Language Technology Center, which is really worth looking at if you're interested in teaching languages. And obviously, uh, our big favorite of the last few weeks, Ken Robinson on the element. But much, much more. We hope that you'll come and, and listen to those recordings, including a few from InnoSight. So I'm going to turn the time over now to Catherine and Michael and uh, let you get started. Thank you both. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Steve, and a uh, fascinating lineup. Uh, I'm reading one of the books of one of your upcoming authors right now, Anya Kamenetz's book, which has just been fabulous read. So quite a great lineup you have coming up for sure. Uh, what we wanted to uh, uh, do today was to talk about this case study that uh, we published in the last couple weeks uh, about Wichita Public Schools and their learning centers. And, and Catherine, uh, if I can turn to you on this one, you know, we're What's going on in Wichita, Kansas, uh, that, that sparked your imagination to write this case study about them? Great. I just want to start out by thanking Steve for having us on this program. I'm really excited to be here and to have the opportunity to speak about Wichita. Uh, about a year ago, I flew out to Wichita and visited Wichita Public Schools. I had the opportunity to interview students and teachers and observe how the, how the program works that I wrote about. And it was really fascinating. And I just want to start out by describing how the program works, I guess. Um, Wichita Public Schools has a dropout recovery and credit recovery program. Um, the dropout recovery program serves adults and youth who have dropped out of high school and want to return to receive their high school diploma. The credit recovery program is for current high school students who, for some reason, have either failed a course or dropped out of a course and need to retrieve those credits so they can graduate from high school. And so it's two very distinct groups of, of, of students that the program serves. Um, as a result, they decided to separate these students into two different um, facets of the program. So they have the credit recovery and the dropout recovery portions. And the dropout, and currently, they are running four dropout recovery centers. Uh, these centers are located off campus. Uh, two of them are located in shopping malls, and two others are located in other buildings throughout the city. Um, they are open from, generally from 8 in the morning till 5 at night, 
and students can come in at any time to work on their coursework online. Um, they don't need to be there for a specific number of hours during the day. There's no, it doesn't, this program doesn't follow a typical school schedule or an academic calendar. Um, and there are teachers there to help them with their work. And the credit recovery portion is generally open after school for students to drop in um, after the school day. There are a couple of them that are open during the school day, but generally it's, it's after school. And again, the students can come in when they want to and stay as long as they need to during the hours it's open. That sounds like a, a, a fascinating uh, uh, start to, to why Wichita was obviously interesting with dropout recovery and credit recovery. What was the fundamental problem that Wichita was facing that caused them to start up these two programs? And when did they start them? Wichita is located in Kansas, which you think is a rural state. Um, but interesting enough, Wichita is actually the biggest city in Kansas and is quite a big urban city. And Wichita Public Schools faces many of the problems that any urban school district would, would um, have. For example, they, had, they found in 1997, the district started looking at their numbers and found that they, have, they had a very low graduation rate, a very high dropout rate. Uh, they serve a very diverse student body. Many of their students are eligible for free or reduced price lunch. And um, they needed to find a way to get most, more of these, to get more of those students that had dropped out back into school and the students who were not graduating on time to help them to be able to do this. It struck me that you had a really uh, powerful explanation in a case study about when these students dropped out, it really affected their lives in some visceral ways. And the main character in many cases in the case, uh, Terry Barrent, uh, uh, actually felt this problem pretty viscerally, it seemed. Mm -hmm. the, the dangers of dropping out of high school have been well documented. Um, the silence epidemic gives the statistics um, which are very, very high and very alarming. Um, students that drop out of high school have a very high probability of being unemployed, um, relying on public funding, public assistance funding, going to jail. Um. Yeah, it's interesting actually just to jump off that. They, uh, a lot of cities will even build their jails based on <laughs> reading scores in the early grades of elementary school because that will predict dropouts, which then predicts the number of students who will find their way into jail. So it's a sad problem they were obviously facing. And, and as you made clear in the case, Terry personally felt it because he had seen many of his own students drop out. One of my questions, I guess, off of that is, with such a big problem facing them, seeing that they recast this as an opportunity uh, and to actually build something, what, what, what caused them to do that? In the case study, I talked a little bit about Terry Barrett. He um, was a district employee. And he saw this need. He had watched many of his students, when he was a vice principal, drop out of the school and had followed them. Um, he'd seen them on the streets. He'd seen them read, read about them going to jail or not paying, um, their, paying their child support. And he wanted to find a way to help these students. Um, he thought that it was the responsibility for society to help everyone regardless of their age. Mm. Um, and so he put together a small group of district employees uh, to help him develop some sort of vision and plan for this program. 
And as they talked about it, they realized that online learning, that creating a computer-based learning program would be the best way to solve this problem because each of the students would have such different needs coming in in terms of academics. Uh, they had dropped out at different points in their high school career and it would be too expensive to have a different teacher for every subject in every class. By using computer-based learning, um, the students could come in, they could start at wherever they were, whatever level they were, and work at their own pace to complete the courses they needed to, uh, with only having two teachers in the classroom to help them. So it, it sounds like a classic case of non-consumption in our language, where they saw people who were not being served uh, by the existing system, mm -hmm. and they said, you know, there's an opportunity to serve them. Why did you choose Wichita? I know you've been traveling around quite a bit and <laughs> in a lot of districts that have programs like these. Uh, and there are a lot of alternative schools, certainly throughout the country. That's not a new phenomenon, per se. What struck you about Wichita that made you want to write about them? What about their program? Before I answer this question, I want to touch a little bit on what you said about non-consumption. Yeah, okay. um, Wichita definitely is a case of non-consumption. Uh, before the program was started, there was no way for students who had dropped out of school to earn a high school diploma. They had the option of, of earning a GED, which is a general education diploma. I mean, G is that correct? General education, yeah, yeah, GED. Yeah. Um, but that limited their opportunities for employment, um, and many people, many people, or I guess many businesses, um, did not consider GED as at the same level as a high school diploma. Um, also, students who were in high school who had um, fallen behind had very few options to catch up on their credits. And they had a summer school program, but the summer school program um, was a full day program at the school, and many of these students had to work during the summer and could not attend. And, and so the students really did not have many options uh, to, to receive their diplomas. And, and so they really were a case of non-consumption. Um, in terms of why I chose to write about Wichita, um, when I flew, so I visited a couple different districts last year. And all of them were so interesting. All of them were so fascinating. And I'm, I'm writing a comparison about them in this next paper. Uh, but when I came back, I was just particularly interested in, in Wichita. They really, they really stood out to me, their program, um, for a couple of reasons. One, I love the fact that they didn't replicate a traditional school. Uh, when Terry and his group put together the program, they really thought out of the box and they thought, what can we do to meet these students' needs um, and built a program that did that. They knew that many of the students um, in the Dropout Recovery Center had families or would be working and it would be difficult for them to attend school on a typical schedule. Um, and so that's why they made it a drop-in, drop-out program. Uh, they had to complete so many hours a week and, and they had to get so far. Um, so literally if they just as long as they attended a certain number of hours a week, they would stay on schedule. Exactly. But it wasn't nine to, nine to three. Exactly. So okay. they could come in for three hours one day, five hours another day, one hour the next day, whatever it took and whatever hours it worked for them. Um, with an online program, which they have now, they didn't move to online until 2004 because when the program started in 1999, there still were not many online 
options for high school students. Um, so you have to do all the coursework in the in centers that they build. Okay. Now that it's online, a lot of the students will do half, spend half the day, and will spend maybe four hours in the center during the day and four hours at home working. When they're in the center, they have access to the teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they're at home, they can do what they can on their own. So the program doesn't use virtual teachers. The program uses in-person classroom teachers, in Yes, fact? and each center has two teachers, um, one that's certified in math and, and science, the other certified in social studies and English. Hmm. And um, the, the students have access to those teachers um, during the time that they're in the center. And if they are working from home, they can email their, their teachers. They can call them on the phone, and they still have access to them, just not in person. Gotcha. Surely this is on an academic calendar, 180 days a year, or is it open all year round? It's, well, it's open all year. Well, it started out being open all year, and then they found that during the month of July, most students were taking vacation and were not coming in, so it ended up closing during the month of July because it was so expensive to keep it open that month. Um, with the low number of students, but um, it's open, other than July, it's open every month. Students can um, enroll in the program at any time through the year, in the year. They can start a program at any time in the year. They don't have to wait um, for a new semester or a new school year. So, and if I'm, so if I'm a student right now, my life looks like I've dropped out. I have X number of credits I need to fulfill to graduate. Uh, maybe I'm 23 years old or something like that. Am I capturing the uh, mm -hmm. sort of the student's life? And then, and and so I'm working maybe a, a full-time job. And you're saying now I can you you can do a night shift to that and come in for a couple hours a few times a week, and uh, and take whatever classes I need whenever I need them. Is mm -hmm. that is that basically what I'm looking at? That's exactly what you're looking at. Interesting. Now. If I'm a district official listening to this uh, listening to this session off of the Future of Education website, how do I set this up? <laughs> where, where did these guys start? Well, it's interesting because Terry and his group had this vision uh, for pro this program, which is very different than a, what you see in a typical school. And because it was so different, they had a hard time receiving um, or. I guess support from the district, from the superintendent and the board of trustees. And so when they initially took their idea to the superintendent, um, he was not excited about the idea of having it in a shopping mall. Um, Programs in shopping malls. Wow. Okay. Keep going. And um, and so he actually turned, put down the idea at first, and, and said he would not give any funding um, for it. But Terry and his group, they felt like this program was what the district really needed. And they felt like it would really reach the students and serve their needs. And so they actually went about and raised all of the money for the first year of the program to set it up and to run it for the first year. Hmm. Um, they knew that after the first year they could start receiving state funding for it, that that wouldn't kick in until the second year of the program. Um, and so they applied for grants. They got the community involved in raising money. Um, and. I just think it's an amazing story that um, just one person in the district had an innovative idea and was able to carry it out without the support of the superiors. And then he really built the structure around it mm -hmm. that still lasted over a decade later now. Yeah, and it's, I, it's, I mean, it's, when I visited it, I was very impressed with the structure that they had created, and they obviously really cared about the students and were creating a very student-centric program that um, 
What is the weather today? Well, let's jump in on one of those elements. Um, you just said shopping malls. Mm -hmm. I assume that's for the dropout recovery centers. Yes. What does a dropout recovery center look like, and why is it in a shopping mall? So, um, tell me what, what when you walked into it the first time. What would you see? <laughs> um, so you walk into the mall. There's Dillard's, and next to Dillard's is this is this. I, I, it's not a classroom, mm -hmm. but um, they're all built differently. There are two in the shopping malls. One of them you walk in, it's just a large room, and um, there are computers that are all along the walls. Uh, teachers' desks are at either end of the room. Uh -huh. um, they have different spaces set up for the students to work. They have some couches in one area where the students can, can read or socialize. Um, they also have some group study tables set up um, if the students are working in groups. Also, they can sit with the teachers at those those places uh, to work with them. They have um, a career center uh, where they have books and pamphlets and everything that the students would need to help them in their career search. Um, and each of the and the centers are set up with desktop computers uh, that have headphones for the students to use. Gotcha. So, and and. Uh I recall reading in the case study that they've set up at least a couple of these with the help of communities and schools. Yes, community schools was very, very instrumental in helping to um, create the vision for the program and to set it up. What is communities and schools? Communities and schools is a nonprofit uh, organization. They're actually the largest dropout recovery um, okay. program yeah. in the in the U.S. What they do is they they help create opportunities to help students. Um, sort of remove the, the roadblocks uh, that are preventing them from being able to finish school. Uh, so they bring in counselors, they, they help set up programs that help students to um, reach their goals. Um, yeah, they have a theory, if I recall from, from some of my interactions with them, is, which is the learning job, if you will, <laughs> is actually only a small part of the problem for why a lot of these students drop out in the first place, and often is the social supports that they need, the caseworkers, and, and things like that, uh, just really the social structure, because a lot of these uh, kids' homes that they come from are so broken mm -hmm. in sort of their priorities, and so they help to uh, really be a friend to the student. It sounds like there are more than just teachers in these places then, yeah. from what I'm hearing from you. So community schools um, help them uh, have social workers or student supports in each of the centers. And what these social, what these social workers or student supports do is they um, help the students with um, meal vouchers, they help them find childcare, housing options, um, transportation. Um, in some of the centers, they actually do classes for the students. Um, one of the centers I visited, the social worker will do a class once a week for uh, for women that are pregnant, whether they have classes for, for ones that are expecting their children and ones that have already had children, hmm. to teach them how to raise their children and what to expect. Um, That's fascinating. That's fascinating. It reminds me a lot of uh, what uh, Jeffrey Canada has done in Harlem with the Harlem's children, Harlem Children's Zone in, in that regard. The, uh, so, so let's sh shift from there. Well, actually, let me, let me editorialize for one moment. It seems that in our language, they're sort of commoditizing the learning job and saying these are actually where we need to put the value to really help these students where they are, uh, w w which is a classic case of disruption, I would say, in many cases. So 
compare this now to the uh, credit recovery centers. Uh, are, are those involved? So the credit recovery centers are located in the high schools. Okay. Um, the reason why they decided to separate the two is they decided that dropout, students that have dropped out of school, many of them would be older than the high school students and might not want to return to a high school setting. Um, also many of them have jobs and putting it in a mall, for example, if they're already working in a mall, it's so easy for them to stop in and do that work. Whereas students who are current, current high school students, it's so much easier for them just to go down to the library of the school after school. Um, then they don't, their parents don't have to worry about driving them around. Are there teachers in the credit recovery centers? Yes, and so the dropout recovery centers have two full-time teachers in each center. The credit recovery centers, what they do is they use teachers from the school. Um, they have different teachers come in each day um, consistently during the week. And um, you usually have about one or two teachers, depending on the size of the center, uh, that will help the students and they receive hourly pay for it. Gotcha. Now, uh, the curriculum in both of these places, uh, you've already said it's it was originally computer-based courses. It's now migrated to online courses and the distinction, I guess, is computer-based are locally hosted mm -hmm. and therefore you have to be in the facility. Online you can do anywhere and anytime as long as you have access to the Internet. Um, did they use the same curriculum for the credit recovery and dropout recovery program? Um, prior to 2004, uh, they were using different curriculums, but in 2004, uh, they actually decided that they needed to um, make the programs more uniform. And so at that time, they, they decided to use Apex Learning Digital Curriculum. Um, and that's what they use right now for both the credit recovery and the dropout recovery programs. Gotcha. Okay. And so Apex has obviously been a leader in the online learning space uh, for some time now. So that makes some sense. Uh, what about the role of, we, we, we talked about the role of the social workers and the dropout recovery centers. The credit recovery ones don't have, uh, don't have those supports, is that correct? No, that, that's correct because they use the counselors of the school. Gotcha. What about the role of the teacher? Uh, when curriculum is being delivered online, what, what are they doing? This is a question a lot of people have about online pro learning programs. Um, the teachers actually have a very important role and it was interesting to visit the different centers because the teachers really set the tone of the center and each center was different depending on how the teachers ran it. And um, whenever I spoke with students they always said that they could not have succeeded in the program without the teachers. So the teachers have a very important role. Um, but it's different than what you would see in a, in a traditional classroom. The teachers are not delivering the curriculum, um, the computer is, and so they have time to spend, they have more time so they can spend one-on-one -on -one time with the students, they can tutor them when they see that they have a problem, they can be mentors to them, they can help them um, figure out their, what they want to do in life or, or talk to them about what's going on at home and, and to be examples to them of um, who they can become and what they can do. Mm -hmm. And the teachers, and the students think very highly of their teachers and like to go to the centers because they know the teachers don't judge them on their background. Uh, one of the centers says, we don't care about your past, we just care about your future. And, um, and so they've created a safe environment for these students where they feel like it's a home to them. Gotcha. Just want to make sure the audio uh, is, is coming through loud and clear. There's one note there that the audio is not quite clear, so hopefully this is a little bit better. Okay, great. So now the, uh, 
the uh, so, so that's interesting on the role of the teacher uh, and, and, and really sets that up. How do you fund all of this stuff that's going on? Uh, this sounds expensive. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing a lot of adults right now. <laughs> you've got computer curriculum, which means you've got a lot of computers for kids. Uh, is it expensive? How do they fund it? Um, it's very interesting, actually, how they fund the program because um, they receive state funding primarily. Um, and it's interesting because they only receive the state funding for the students in the dropout recovery program. Mm -hmm. They don't receive any state funding for the students in the credit recovery program because the high schools are already receiving all of the funding for those students. And so when they were first setting up the program, they had this problem. How do we fund both programs and make sure that they're both self-sustaining? And the way they answered this question is they decided to take all of the funding for the dropout recovery students, put it in a big pot, as to say, for to say, and and then distribute it to the credit recovery and dropout recovery students as needed. Um, in order to help make this possible, they charge credit recovery students um, $75 per half credit per semester long course. Um, one reason why they felt this was okay to do this is because these students had had already taken the course and had dropped out or had failed it and um, it wasn't for original credit mm -hmm. and so they felt like they could justify asking the students for this money. And, and you have to remember that a lot of these students are um, living below the poverty level and so the program, if a student can't pay the $75 then they'll help them out. So basically so they, they just want to make sure it's not an incentive exactly. to drag it out or keep failing or something like and that. And they feel that by charging the students this money that um, it guarantees those students will finish the course. Gotcha. So it's not a huge part of the revenue. Most of it is from the states, which is covering both the dropouts and the credit recovery students. Exactly. So they receive the state funding uh, that is typical for all every student. They receive a certain amount for each student, just like any school. They also receive some at-risk funding. And so is it more expensive or is it, it sounds like it's less expensive? It's actually right? less expensive. So in 2008-09, they found we did the calculations and found that it's roughly $3,879 per student in the dropout recovery centers, and that is and that's approximately $7,370 sorry $7,307 less than district per pupil expenditure, which is quite a lot. Dollars less per pupil than wow. Okay, so that's that's quite a. Uh, that, that's quite an efficient program that they're operating. How, uh, how many students are they serving? Um, in the dropout recovery center in 2008-09 there were 497 students and in the credit recovery there were 449 students. So they're actually serving a lot of people. Are the students in the dropout recovery program, I think you've sort of already touched upon this, but they're not necessarily people that have just dropped out in the last year or two. In many cases they're They've been out of school for five years. Exactly. The program serves students between the ages of 16 and 60, and um, while the majority are between the ages of 18 and 21, there are some older students. There was one that I talked to who was 56 years old and was just going back to earn his degree, and it was really touching to watch him because he was so excited about this program. Apparently, he's going every day and spent all day there learning, and I I just watched him pouring over the curriculum and just really concentrating and trying really hard to learn. And 
And one day he just decided, I guess he'd been laid off from his job, and he decided, I just need to go back to school and, and get my degree. And so interesting. When, and, and, and Steve, when, when Steve has uh, Anya on next week, I'm sure she, she'll talk about this too. Her book is chock full of the statistics of what having uh, no high school diploma, just having a GED, just having a high school degree, just having a college degree, and, and so on, is how predictive it is of your ability to earn in the, in the workforce. So I, I guess that's what he was seeing loud and clear and figured out he needed a way to, to earn that high school diploma to, uh, to get back on track. Does, um, now, I, I, there are a lot of different ways, places we could go with this right now. How many uh, credits is a dropout recovery student typically taking at, at, at a time? Are they taking seven courses? Are they taking one course? What, what, what are they doing? So the way the program works is um, at first the students can only take one course. Um, the counselor will sit down with them and help them figure out what subjects they think that they are good at and what they enjoy doing so that their first experience with online learning will be positive. Uh, once they have finished, successfully finished that one course, then they have the option of taking two courses at a time. But the program does not allow them to take more than two at a time uh, for a couple of reasons. One, they want to make sure that the student is able to really focus on learning the material for that one for those two courses um, and not feel overwhelmed with learning so much. Also, this way they're able to finish a course and then move on to the next one and they can finish it much faster than obviously if they had seven courses at the same time. Gotcha. Uh, so it takes about, you said, a, a month to finish a credit? Exactly. They, uh, it, it's approximately a month for a half credit, a semester long course to okay. be completed. Gotcha. If they're working consistently for seven hours a week. How many credits uh, or enrollments uh, were completed uh, by the dropouts uh, in, in, in the most recent year? In 2008-09 year, the dropouts completed 1,342 enrollments, um, and by the end of the year, there were 977 enrollments that they had in process, that they hadn't quite completed, but they had been working on. That's an interesting thing that jumped out at me um, about this case study, which was because it's not on a calendar year, uh, it's actually hard in some sense to measure the performance of the program at any point in time because it's always a snapshot and there's some things in process, uh, there's some things that are completed. We don't know what time horizon they were completed over necessarily. And so reporting on it is actually more complicated than maybe uh, a traditional uh, school program. Exactly. And, in, and for that reason, it's, it's very difficult to compare traditional school programs and innovative programs like this. Yeah, interesting. Now, how many credit enrollments or in, yeah, uh, semester long enrollments were uh, completed in the credit recovery portion? In the credit recovery portion, um, during the 2008-09 school year, there were 931 completed enrollments and 654 enrollments in process. Still in process. Okay, now when a student is in the credit recovery, if the enrollment is in process, school still shuts down right at the end of the year. So what, what, what do they do? They, do they continue taking it from home or do they go in during summer school or, or how does that work? A couple options. They can work on it at home. Um, with online learning they can do it anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, they can wait till the next year if they want. Uh, mm -hmm. They can go into the credit recover into the dropout recovery centers. Even though the centers were created for different types of students, um, the dropout recovery still will serve credit recovery students. Oh, the credit recovery will still serve dropout recovery students. Oh, interesting. So if you really wanted to go to another center because it was better for you for whatever reason, you, that would be open to you. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Um, is there a wait list for these uh, dropout recovery programs, or are they serving all the students that want to be in there? It's interesting. The way the program works, uh, the dropout recovery centers, for example, um, there are about 20-something computers in each center. Um, but because the students are not there at the same time, they can serve many more students than they have computers. Um, but, but regardless of this, they still have a cutoff of how many students each center can um, ideally serve in terms of, of the capacity of the center and um, the teachers that are available. And so there is a waiting list. And during the 2008-09 school year, they had 300, 300 students on the waiting list, which is quite a large number and shows that they have room for growth. Interesting. Now, I'm going to jump back to curriculum for a second because I'm going to ask a question that I think is near and dear to Steve's heart, which is, uh, do, do the teachers ever pull in resources from the, the broader web to serve a student? Say they're struggling with a certain module in the APEX learning curriculum. Is a teacher able to go out on the open web and bring in an open education resource or something like that to, uh, to uh, help that student? Does that happen or, 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 or are we still constricted to sort of the course? And that's one of the great things about APEX Learning is that it allows teachers to do that. It gives them room. It, it, APEX Learning provides the core curriculum and um, teachers can supplement it with whatever projects they want. There's actually, each course actually has an appendix um, that is specifically for teachers to add um, projects or create their own projects uh, for the students to use. And um, students really, I mean, teachers really can do whatever they want with the curriculum. They don't need to follow anything precisely. They can bring in outside resources. They can um, tell the students to go on the web to research different things, um, whatever it takes for the students to do well in the courses. Let's talk about the architecture of the course a little bit more. Um, there are assessments at interval times, mm -hmm. and, and you use the word mastery-based mm -hmm. in the case study. What's so important about that? Um, in, a <laughs> in a traditional classroom, um, there might be 30 students in a class, and they all learn the same subject, and at the end of that unit, they all take a final exam, and regardless if they pass the exam or how they do, they move on to the next mm -hmm. unit. Um, with APEX learning, being mastery-based, the way it works is students work at their own pace. Um, courses are divided, are made up of units. Each unit has so many lessons, and each, unit, each lesson has so many activities. Um, a student will complete a lesson, and at the end of that lesson, there is a quiz, and the student cannot move on to the next lesson until they have um, passed, they've successfully completed the quiz. The district or school can decide what um, successfully, successful completion means. In this case of Wichita, the students must receive at least 80 a score of 80% on the quizzes, which is kind of a big deal for these students. Many of them have never even received higher than 50% on a quiz. Mm. And um, the students have the option of taking the quiz as many times as they need to until they receive that score. After Does the quiz randomize? Yes, so after three, um, sorry, so each time it randomizes. So it's not the same quiz they're taking. They're different It's just a basic to understand, the con make sure that they understand the content, but it prevents easy cheating. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Uh, so, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but that, that, that's an interesting point because cheating, I know, is a concern mm -hmm. <laughs> that a lot of people have in any environment in school, uh, online in particular, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like that they've, they've, they've solved that problem, at least on the quizzes. At least on the quizzes. I mean, 
no school is perfect, whether it's online or offline, mm -hmm. in terms of cheating. Uh, students always find a way to get around it, but in terms of the quizzes, um, it's very difficult for the students to cheat. Gotcha. Now, uh, so I can't remember if we talked about the wait list yet um, in, in terms of the dropout recovery uh, program. So, okay, so we've, we've covered that. Um, what about the results of this program in terms of what it's doing for the district? Is, is it accomplishing? So they had this original problem. All these people are dropping out. Uh, it's impairing their lives. It's hurting the districts in terms of its graduation rate and it has a high dropout rate. I think the graduation rate was in the 50s, if I recall from the mm -hmm. case. What, what, what's going on now, and, and how has the program contributed? Um, in terms of the grad, so initially the program was, program was created to help increase the graduation rate. That was the initial concern. Um, in the, since 1999, when the program um, was created, there have been 974 students who have graduated from the dropout recovery program, which is quite a large number given um, the fact that all of these students, 100% of these students had failed out of a traditional school. Mm -hmm. um, so that's quite a large increase um, when you're starting with 100% failure. Um, but at the same time, that's only 26% of the students that the program has served. So there's obviously room for more growth within the program and improvements in that. Yeah, that sounds like a high number of students who are still not completing it, even given the number yeah. of students serving. But uh, at the same time, you have to remember that these are not your traditional students. Mm -hmm. These students come in with many problems. Um, and if it was a traditional, if it was your traditional student, then I think the number would be much worse than the types of students we're looking at mm -hmm. here. What about, um, do we have a feel for how this compares to districts nationwide? Are there statistics on this readily available or, or no? That's one of the problems with online learning is it's such a new field that so little research has been done on it. Um, so we don't have those numbers, unfortunately. And so we are unable to compare across the board because every district um, create, I mean, collect their data differently and um, present it differently, and so it's difficult to compare across the board just how well, how this is happening with others. But I think a study would be fabulous. Start to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that, that's interesting. Are there other aspects of the results that you found uh, really intriguing or that uh, were, were difficult to obtain <laughs> that, that are worth noting as well and when, when we think about whether this is a, a good program? Yeah, so in terms of the district's graduation rate, um, it's, it's improved. Um, I think it was nine percentage points since the program began. Not all of this growth, this increase is actually due to the program, but the program did help um, contribute to it. Um, it strikes me that the credit recovery portion of the program is really hard to quantify mm -hmm. how that helps the graduation rate because if I don't remember the number that you said has been uh, earned back over the lifetime of the program in the credit recovery, but obviously every time a student earns that a credit, it means it's less likely that they'll drop out probably, right? Exactly. And they're not much closer to graduating. And so we know that a lot of students have graduated because of the credit recovery portion. Unfortunately, we do not have those numbers. Um, it's hard to follow each student who participated in the credit recovery and, and see how they when they graduated and, and how it happened. 
And I think it would be so interesting to have those numbers, and I wish we did. <laughs> it seems like a tough problem to solve, for the, but uh, obviously as us in the research community and others keep, keep mm -hmm. looking at these, I think that's an important part to understand the bang for the buck, which is obviously an extremely affordable program. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so it seems like there's a lot of value being, being obtained out of it. Are there other parts of the um, case study that jumped out at you as, as really interesting to, to, to talk about? Or, or I, I'll also ask uh, a couple people, and Steve, of course, as well, who are on the, uh, on the session, if there are any questions that you have uh, as we start to wrap up. Well, in terms of results, I also wanted to point out that um, during the 2008-09 school year, 38% of the students in the dropout recovery centers withdrew, hmm. which is quite a large number. Um, again, we need to take into account the types of students that the program is serving, that these are not your typical students. Um, but again, there is room for improvement. I actually did notice one thing in the case study that there's a couple things that are occurring to me now that I think are worth bringing out. But one of them is that when the district switched to Apex Learning, it seemed to me on the graph of results mm -hmm. that there was a dip down. Mm -hmm. What was going on there? Yeah, it's really interesting because um, the programs that, one of the reasons why the district decided to change to Apex Learning is that the programs it had been using initially, um, they were afraid were too easy for the students. Uh, many students started looking at the program as an easy way out, that they could, um, if they dropped out of school, they could, re they could earn their degree much easier um, with these programs that didn't require as much work. And so they switched over to Apex Learning, which, is a, which was a much more rigorous program. And um, when that happened, prior to that, um, the number of graduates had been increasing each year. If you look at the graph on page 19 of the case study, and it dipped um, quite a lot when that happened because it was such a more rigorous program. All of a sudden, students had to do so much more work um, that they weren't able to graduate as quickly. And I think that number is great for Apex Learning to show just what a great program they are. That's interesting. Now, the last part of it, uh, there's one other switch in the program which was interesting, which was, if I recall, initially the program only allowed, in terms of the dropout recovery yeah. portion, only allowed people who were above a certain age mm -hmm. to enter. I think it was above 18 maybe. 17, yeah, 18 and 18, older. 18 and older. And then it switched and allowed people when they were 16 or 17 to drop out and transfer right into the program. Is this a good thing? It seemed like there was a little tension in, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, thinking about that this might be a good thing, but it might not be. Yeah, it, it's kind of been a controversial uh, topic in Wichita. So the legislature um, changed the rules so that the law so that students could have the option of dropping out of high school at ages 16 or 17 with parental permission. Um, and so when this happened, students could transfer directly into the dropout recovery program. Prior to this, this law being changed, um, students had had to have dropped out of high, been dropped out of high school for a year before they could enroll in the program. And one of the reasons for this is that um, it gave the students opportunities to go out into the real world and to realize how important a, drop, a high school diploma was. Mm. Um, so they came back more motivated. Exactly. And, and it was interesting to watch the students in these programs because the dropout recovery students were very motivated because they were there by choice. They would chosen to go into that program because they knew that they had a goal in mind and they were working towards that goal. And I think many times the dropout recovery programs are more successful than the credit recovery programs for that reason. Um, but the 
it changed when these 16 and 17 year olds were going straight into the program from high school. Um, the teachers found that many of these students didn't last in the program very long because they didn't come in with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so there's obviously a question that I, I don't expect you to be able to answer, <laughs> but that, which is, you know, is just the mere establishment of a program <laughs> good enough or is the innovation in the online learning really what's making it tick in some mm -hmm. sense? Uh, is it their motivation or, or is it, you know, something else because it's so unconventional, which mm -hmm. is obviously hard to tease apart here. What's your sense of it? Um, from talking to students and do, do they like this? Does it work for them? Uh, it's interesting because it works for some students, but not all students. Um, most of the students I talk to really enjoy the program. And for some reasons that I'm going to talk about, it's interesting because the students, so the way APEX works is you're working on your own. You're not working with other students. Um, there is not a lot of interaction with other students. And the students that seem to have really done well in APEX courses and really enjoyed it were not the students that would have been on the front row raising their hand and speaking out to the teachers. These were the students who told me that they'd sat on the back row um, and didn't say anything in class. Maybe, and they said that many times they didn't understand what the teacher was saying, but they were too embarrassed to raise their hand mm -hmm. and to ask for clarification. And so they were lost in class and that's one of the reasons they ended up dropping out is because they didn't know what was happening. Um, and this way, they can work on the curriculum by themselves. They, if they don't understand something, they go back to the last lesson and they read it again. And they aren't embarrassed to ask the teacher because they aren't competing with other students. And, um, and for this particular type of student, the, the curriculum has been extremely successful. That's, that's really interesting. And I guess it points to it, a different thing that you've observed, certainly, as being out there over the last couple of years uh, studying this phenomenon which is that there's a lot of different kinds of online mm -hmm. learning programs, yeah. some that are intensely social mm -hmm. and intensely working with uh, different uh, uh, members of your peers mm -hmm. and so forth, and, and then an Apex learning program, which is the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I guess it just goes to show that there's no one-size-fits-all. Exactly. And, uh, and so that sort of, I, I'm struck by, I was again reading something else, someone was saying, you know, most learning, the best learning is predictive of if you have a study group in college or something mm -hmm. like that. And I was thinking, gosh, that may be true for many kids, but I hated study groups. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess it just goes to show you really want this diversity of options mm -hmm. for students. And it shows that the teachers in the, and the districts really need to be intu intuitive and to really know who their students are and what their students need and not expect all of them to to succeed in the same online learning program just like they wouldn't succeed altogether in the classroom. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. Uh, before we wrap up, I think we're, 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 we're drawing, to the, uh, drawing to the end. Uh, Steve just said that you must be reading John Seeley Brown. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it's actually from Anya's book, but it, it comes from Richard Light's, uh, uh, Richard Light's work, I believe, which John Silly Brown drew off of, I think, in his work. If I, if I, if I have the lineage correct, I think that's the academic uh, root of it. And, and I think uh, the study, if I recall, is that students in college uh, you can predict their performance based on the access to study groups and those who had much more access had better grades and did better. And I just can tell you that my experience was the exact opposite. I did worse when I had study groups. So it's just uh, it's one of those on average statements that I think gets us into trouble a lot in education, uh, which I think Catherine, you just brought out really well. Are there other 
and and I, I think we have one one uh, one, one hand raised. Is that I do have a question. That was me. So this has been really interesting to me, and especially this discussion uh, of the differences. And I think our expectation of meeting uh, student differences has dramatically increased, um, you know, at least in the last several years, um, and maybe as a result also of our kind of uh, consumer model of being able to get customized uh, things from from large-scale manufacturing facilities, like I order a customized Dell computer, you know, uh, we, we want our, our students or children to have customized learning experiences. But we also have this tension with the uh, sort of immediate desire to figure out how to scale a program. Something successful, how are we going to scale it, how are we going to make it universal? And part of what I heard you say, Catherine, was that this program was really highly dependent on passionate individuals who kind of went outside the box and came up with creative solutions. So is there a lesson there for us in terms of how we typically think of educational programs? Because it seems to me it might be hard to scale this program because it really depended on that local uh, initiative. I'll, I'll let uh, Catherine, uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll give a stab at it while she thinks about it. Um, I, you know, I think it's a good point, Steve. I think there's elements of it that scale really well, right? Apex Learning's curriculum is something that can scale across geographies with no problem whatsoever. And what you would love to have is obviously a couple different options. And I think seeing the beginnings of that right now and some of the new uh, learning management systems uh, and, and educational software uh, focus on, on adaptability and drawing and open education resources to uh, teach the kid at the right time. So there's that element of it that I think is highly scalable. But I think your other point is really an, an important one. It's one that Clayton and I have been thinking about recently, which is do we have the flawed model of constantly searching for scale? And in fact, we need to figure out scope first and wrap our hands around the entire problem that's quite interdependent and thorny for certain students. And so you might have to do a Harlem's Children's Zone and, uh, and, and touch every element or aspect of a child's life when they need it um, first and then worry about the scaling of that uh, second. And, and those circumstances might be very different. So to me, in many ways, what we're trying to do is commoditize the learning job, which can probably scale, and uh, move the, the resources and attention to these very individualized case-by-case case, uh, things around how much personal attention does a student need, how much social support, and, and so forth. And so one element of it scales even as you make the other possibly more intuitive and less scalable in the immediate future at least, I would think. Uh, Catherine, does that accord? And then Steve, I'd love your reaction too to that. No, I totally agree with you. And one thing I want to add is one thing that I did love about this program is that it is a program that any district can start. Um, our last case study that we wrote about was Boys Academy, which was a fascinating story of how they got started. But the problem with it is it was a very unique situation um, that Chicago had this program in place, the Renaissance 2010 program, that was allowing new schools to be built. And while it's a fascinating story, it's not one that um, any, any individual can go out and start a new school. Whereas with Wichita, um, any, any school can raise, can get the grant money and start this program. Um, Communities and Schools is a national program that um, has so many great resources that uh, district employees can talk to you. It was, it was Communities and Schools that um, 
brought to Terry's attention the fact that the Simon Youth Foundation, which was started by um, the owners of Simon Malls, which is the largest mall provider in the United States, had a program um, where they would they would basically give free um, mall space for program, for schools to start these programs and um, communities and schools. I think is a great resource for any individual looking to start a program like this. Yeah, and, and I guess the non-consumption opportunities that exist in Wichita are certainly not unique. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, unfortunately, uh, districts that face high dropout rates and. Mm -hmm lots of students failing courses. And when a school or district is starting a program like this, it is very important for them to think out of the box and to create a program that it does not replicate a traditional school. And I think that was one of the things that I loved the most about Wichita was that it really created a unique program that met the service students and met their needs. Steve, if I can jump off one other point, then I'd love to hear your reaction too. If I can throw it back at you, that's probably not fair. Uh, but, uh, but, I, but I'd be curious, given that we have a couple more minutes. Um, w one other aspect of it, I think, is that I think the case studies that Catherine and others are working on right now out of our midst are really doing a good job of highlighting uh, opportunities or places that may not be broad opportunities in the case of boys uh, to start these programs in really innovative ways. And I think what you'll see when you dig into a lot of these programs is that they're not perfect and there's a lot of things you would do differently or could do with a lot more imagination. And that if we, but if we see the opportunity, we can start to uh, use it as a real innovation lab to uh, put in better data systems to better individualize for students, to uh, make it more predictable for different circumstances. Things that we haven't done, and, and most of the online learning platforms, quite frankly, are not architected around at the moment. But what I hope they do is show the opportunity uh, to really take this forward, because this is already a leap forward that is actually quite cheap to do in many ways. So I, th I think there's a there's something around that that's that, that's an opportunity. I'd, I'd I'd love to get your take on it as well. Um, okay, so the, uh, let me respond and see if I've if I've understood you correctly, and also uh, with the caveat that because of the uh, the brain power of the people that I end up having on the show, I feel a little bit like a chameleon. Like I take on the coloring of my most recent guest, and uh, you know I had Tony Wagner on and. Uh, was sort of intrigued not by the Global Achievement Gap book that he had written, but some previous work where he really worked with local organizations to build you know, educational models for the future. And uh, I'm intrigued by this idea that oftentimes we try and institutionalize the result rather than the process. And, and part of what I heard in this case study and the others has been that there's been an environment that's allowed for local initiative to solve problems. And I feel like uh, oftentimes that's the piece I want to institutionalize. I want to institutionalize the opportunity, the, the uh, environment, the um, willingness to change, and then not immediately kind of go to the scale and equity questions, which then oftentimes drive the desire to duplicate the result, to take something sort of lock, stock, and barrel and move it somewhere else. And part of what I've Part of what I've loved about these case studies is how individual they've been and that they do show different opportunities. And my conclusion would be that the showcasing of the differences works really well if you're allowing for that kind of local engagement around building solutions. 
So did I come close to answering yours as I kind of riffed on mine? Yeah, I think that's actually a fascinating take on a lot of levels, Steve. And I guess one thing that I would jump off of that, um, well, there's, there's a couple things that occur to me. One is the purpose of the case studies is to be honest and say that there are different circumstances in different districts, so different things will work in different places. Um, and so that uh, means precisely what you just said, which is that you want these, uh, in, in the case studies, what we want to do is highlight you can take two things from Wichita, one thing from Chicago, and three things from Alpine, uh, and six things from Florida and discard five uh, and, and, and come up with what works for your individual circumstance. The other thing that I think is really interesting about what you said is the idea of giving the room to actually create these innovations and uh, I think that's right and, and so what I would, I, I might phrase it slightly differently but I think it's the same conclusion which is we ought to just be holding people ultimately to account for the outcomes performance-based um, or, or mastery-based uh, funding, if you will. And what you really don't want is to institutionalize the inputs. And so you have to have a school in a certain building with a certain number of hours and a certain number of students and a certain number of teachers and a certain curriculum that looks exactly the way I tell you to. And if you get away from that input measurement, and just focus on the outcomes. I don't care how you get there and if you reinvent the process in two days from now, that's great too, to your point, then I think you can free up the environment to have different processes to realize those outcomes. Um, so, so that's sort of how I come at it. We, we have to get away from the industrial model of regulating what that process looks like. And I think to your point, you'd have to have an environment, I'm going to read exactly what you said, uh, that was flexible. Uh, enough to allow this. Now your next question is then you have to also have the freedom to agree on outcomes. I'm a little actually less clear on that. I, I actually think that the common core standards that are going through right now uh, is absolutely vital to enabling innovation. Um, and the way I would say it is because they're output focused and hopefully will allow for competency environments to occur, hopefully they allow us uh, to say this is what we've got to accomplish. We don't really care how we get there. And um, we do have to have that process to agree on the outcomes. I, I would agree there. Uh, but the way I think of the, um, the, the, the common core standards are not like standards of health codes when you enter a restaurant that are very input focused, but instead like the HTML code that allows everyone to create really innovative websites because they have a basic fundamental language uh, and way of working with each other. We don't have that right now across districts uh, within states or across states or anything which really hurts the market mechanism to really come up with innovative solutions that might only work for a thousand kids who live some of whom live in Wichita, 20 of whom live in Florida, and 15 of whom live in Alaska, but I can't serve any of them because I'm trying to do, because the state has arbitrarily told me I have to do different things for all of them. So I think that's a real barrier right now uh, to, to innovation, if, if, if that makes sense. Um, now, I'm mindful of, one, of two things. One, and this is the caveat to what I just said, and I think we'll hit well with what you're thinking probably. One, 
the processes that we want these things to look like are likely to change over time. And that's for two reasons. One, the technologies and so forth are going to improve, and so we want the environment flexible enough to be able to adopt the innovations and, and create new programs. But secondly, uh, we secondly, the uh, what we ask uh, how society evolves is going to, what society needs is going to change as well, right? A hundred years ago, our schools worked really, really well for what society was demanding. Not so today because of the knowledge demands and the demands to have every student be able to participate in that economy, or almost every student. Um, now, that could evolve again as well, in which case we'd want to have the flexibility to have another discussion on what those outcomes should be. So I think in that sense, I, I, I totally agree with that follow-up question. And I think there's a real danger of lock-in cost on that, uh, to, to, to probably to your point. So, so hopefully that makes sense. It was a bit of a rambling answer, but ho hopefully I came into a place that, that makes sense. Um, because it's a really excellent and sticky point, but I, I think that the common core will prove to be quite prescient. And, you know, there's probably a couple things we need common, like a way just to track every single student, even if they move across districts. Uh, just some sort of common thing like as basic as that to give us a better platform for innovating and to learn more about these students and, and what they need. And right now you can't do that even. So uh, there, there, there are probably a few of these basic architecture problems that we, we, we need to uh, get in place, uh, if, if that makes sense. And I'll, I'll be quiet now uh, as, as we, uh, as, as we uh, finish up this uh, session, which has been really, really enjoyable. So any, any other questions before I wrap up? No, I think that's great. No, I Let's think go ahead and wrap great. up. I'll, uh, I'm going to put up on the slide deck uh, our appreciation for Illuminates Learn Central and for C. Bloom and Associates. Uh, Charlene Bloom uh, provides me with a book fund allows me to buy the books that I do the interviews on. Here's the upcoming schedule, and then I'll let you, the two of you, say goodbye and close out. Well, thanks again for the opportunity. And also, thank you to Illuminate and, and, and of course, uh, your other partners, Seablo and Associates, and, of course, you, Steve, for hosting this excellent series that brings wonderful people uh, like the ones on the slide, Tim Magner, uh, just great people here, Doc, Dr. Epstein, Anya Kamenetz, uh, Kathy Davidson, Elizabeth Kana, great list of people as always, and it's just a, our privilege and pleasure to be able to work with you. And thank you to Catherine uh, for writing a wonderful case study and being a great uh, guest today to uh, explain it to the audience. Really appreciate it. And uh, with that, we will uh, sign off from here in Mountain View, California. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you both. Great job. Thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to talking again. Bye, everybody.